we have to get really creative about how we attract the type of people that we want and what we're doing to then keep them. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted a decade-long trend of people making changes in their work lives. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, from July through September of this year, a record-shattering 13 million Americans, almost 8% of the entire U.S. workforce, left their jobs voluntarily. What is driving this great shift is more complex than just a COVID-19 pandemic and discontent with wages. This change has disproportionately affected women since they are statistically more likely to provide unpaid childcare and at-home schooling. It is also a global phenomenon, with as much as 48% of the workforces in certain industries and regions of the world considering leaving their jobs. Today on Can Do, we will be joined by Bozeman, Montana-based Kendall Clifton Short of the global firm Within People to discuss this topic. Kendall's work focuses on building adaptive businesses that are future-proof. What's driving the great resignation? What are workers looking for as they rethink their career objectives? How do you build a business culture that attracts and retains talent? Can you redesign your business to accommodate this new perspective on the working world? Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Welcome to the show, Kendall Clifton Short. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Um, well, I grew up in Australia and in Perth, Western Australia. And um, I don't know, I think when you're Australian, you spend a lot of time traveling around the world. It's just kind of part of who we are. So I found myself traveling around the world and I've had the privilege of living in a couple of different places. Um, I was over in the US in the early 2000s uh, working and where I met my husband, who's American. Went back to Australia and um, had our children there and then we're excited to be back in the mountains and back in Montana and back close to his family and teaching our children what it means to um, grow up and, you know, with the mountains in their life. And what about your work background before you joined uh, Within People? Yeah, so I'm an educator, so I spent a lot of time um, teaching sustainability education and doing lots of work at sort of an educational leadership level and really seeing how we can unlock um, the potential in people through our teachers and through it, obviously through them, through kids, but then that eventually transitioned into um, a broader context than just education. But really, I think the things that have always been central 
um, from a work perspective in my world are how do we how do we unlock the potential of our people and how do we create experiences that unlock powerful transformation um, on a number of different levels. And you're continuing that work uh, with within people. So tell us about within people. Yeah, so within people, we're a group of global strategists. We have a hub in the west coast of the US, sort of Rocky Mountain West. Then we have a hub in the UK and then we have a hub in South Africa. And we, I guess, really work at the intersection of brand and culture and growth. So really, how do we um, build organisations that are very intentional and purposeful and so attract great people to come and work for them and um, love the mission or the purpose of the organisation and are committed to solving the problems that the organisation is set up to solve. And then their experience of being in that organisation is such that um, they can bring creative problem solving to um, problems that matter and they want to help, they want to stay and they want to help grow that business and um, see it be successful. So how do we, um, yeah, in a nutshell, how do we build purpose uh, purpose-driven, values-led organisations where they can thrive in challenge and uncertainty, especially as the world becomes even more so, and everyone who works for them loves what, they do, what they're doing and the impact that they're helping unlock through the organisation. And have you found with your work within people that the problems and the solutions in the United States and Europe and Africa are similar or are they or are they disparate? I think that there are some similarities and I think there are some disparate pieces. I think the the world's changing and so organizations are have, having to deal with ever increasing magnitudes of uncertainty that that's true no matter the continent that you work on. I think the relationship that sort of the worker if you like plays in um unlocking great things in an organization is a little bit different and certainly the like the, some you know places like asia and australia and south africa and and europe to a degree the the value i think of an employee to an organization is less transactional than it can be in the us not in every organization obviously but the the potential of your people and the them playing this role as the greatest asset in your business is less sort of common, if you like, um, as, a, as a general norm across the US. Of course, there's lots of organisations in the US who are extremely progressive in this way. But in general, I think COVID has really sh changed the way that people are starting to think about the power of their workforce in, in great ways. Glad you brought that up. So we're experiencing a phenomenon that's been referred to as the great resignation. What is your definition of that? Gosh, well, I think the great resignation is the this idea that um, a significant number of people are going to be leaving their jobs post-pandemic for a variety of different reasons. Let's not forget that a whole bunch of people have already left the workforce because of the pandemic, many of whom have not yet returned to the workforce, many of whom who have no aspiration to return to the workforce in the same way that they were 
interacting with the workforce previously. So we've got a whole bunch of people who stepped out of the workforce looking for something different, a whole bunch of people who probably stayed put because of the uncertainty of the pandemic initially. Maybe they were thinking about leaving pre-pandemic but chose not to. And so now what we're finding is the catch-up effect, if you like, of a workforce that, you know, to be honest, for the last sort of 10 years at least, has been choosing voluntarily to leave the workforce and go and look for work uh, in greater numbers than it ever has before. And that number has been gradually increasing over time. But because we saw everybody staying put for a period, now we're sort of seeing all of those people who may have left their jobs during that time period now actively looking for work again. And many in different organisations, obviously, and many people now The pandemic too has sort of helped them rethink what they want their experience of work to be, what's important to them. Maybe they find themselves in different situations in terms of family and care and kids, etc. They're looking for different opportunities and they're willing, especially because often they have more money than they did previously because they haven't been going on holidays and spending it in the same way because they haven't been able to. So about you know, 50% of, up to 50% of people who are leaving the workforce are doing so without having a job, which is sort of unprecedented. And what does that mean for employers? You know, you have this confluence of effects. You have the uh, already a bit of a migration because of gig workers to being an independent worker. COVID comes in and companies let people work from home at an unprecedented level. They have more money now. They're thinking about, you know, I don't like my job or I wasn't happy or this flexibility is more to my liking. But what does that mean for an employer now? Yeah, I mean, what a great question. And I think that's the like $60,000 question that everybody's trying to understand. I think from our perspective, what we're seeing is what it really means is that employers have to work hard to be an employer of choice and they have to rethink what it is that makes them an employer of choice. They have to really be much more connected to what it is that employees are looking for or potential employees are looking for or current employees so that they don't lose them are looking for in a in a significantly more intentional way than they have had to. So previously, and then lots of the the levers or the mechanisms, if you like, that they had at their disposable at, at their disposal to that end previously have sort of been thrown out the window. So lots of organisations that offer free lunch or a beautiful workspace and stuff, like you said, people working from home don't enjoy the benefit of that anymore. So if that was the thing that was making an organisation more attractive than a different organisation, it's sort of no longer a valid currency to be putting in front of people as an enticing thing. And then, of course, Before pre-pandemic, we had this narrative about how we couldn't possibly let people work from home. We just needed to, you know, we couldn't trust them to do work. And again, that's obviously out of necessity. We had to find a way to make that possible logistically from an IT perspective, from whatever you need to, to do your work effectively and access to, you know, people and information and and the things in your organisation that allow people to deliver what they're supposed to be delivering. And then we saw productivity actually increase too when all these people were at home. So this idea that we can't let people work from home because we can't trust them to deliver their work is no longer a valid argument. And then, of course, we have the 
you know, there's a whole myriad of people, some, a small percent of the, of the population who are currently working from home want to go back to the office. A massive portion of the workforce who have been working from home don't want to go back to the office and their managers would like them to. And so we find organisations really rethinking and renegotiating about what virtual and what hybrid and what in-person looks like with a massive degree of flexibility forced upon them that, that they never... And I think the other thing too is the the talent pool is looking different because we've all had the experience of working from home and we have proved that we can do it well as a or as a sort of culturally or as a, a, a country. We can now start to look for talent outside our immediate vicinity in ways that we have never been able to look for before. And of course, you know, there's a massive amount of benefit to that to an organisation providing that we can be the organisation that that great talent wants to come and work for and providing that we can create an environment that is attractive enough to them and um, to, to both come and then to stay. Based on your experience, what's missing when you don't have workers coming to one place working together? Yeah, what a great question. I think a couple of things that you have to work harder to build community because there's no opportunity for the water cooler conversations because there's no water cooler, they're coming around. And there's also no um, natural way for them to perhaps interact out of work. You can't go to the pub or to the bar after work and have a drink and get to people, get to know people as individuals outside of a workspace. Now, some people don't want that anyway, but many people do, especially from a generational perspective. There's some differences, young people, especially if they um, feel quite connected to their work and, and are moving to different places, want to feel then connected to that community. So I think an organisation has to again, think much more intentionally and be conscious about how do we create ways for meaningful ways, like legitimately meaningful ways for people to feel connected. Because when we think about what does our organisation need to understand when we're rethinking how we work together, etc., connection is massive, right? We basically want four things. We want to feel connected in some way meaningfully to the people that we're working. We want some degree of flexibility or autonomy in our work. We want to feel like we um, are growing and we want to feel like we're rewarded fairly equitably for our contribution. And I'm not just talking about money. So if connection is one of the four key drivers that that, that are either keeping people at places or, or not keeping people in places, I think as an organisation, how do we build that connection and then commit to maintaining that connection or allowing other people to have that connection, experience that connection and um, keep it over time becomes a, a much more significant priority than an organisation has ever had to consider previously. And what are the things they can do to make that happen? Yeah, I think the... The, I mean, think just think about all these people who have started new jobs since COVID and have never even met their workforce because they've been onboarded um, virtually. So how do you design an onboarding experience that gets them tapped into a bunch of different people that are going to be key sort of guides along their journey into an organisation and not just have it be tokenistic or on the in the first week. Okay, in the first week, here are the 10 people that you need to meet and then know um, 
no sort of structured way for that to be ongoing. I think sometimes we have to really think carefully, well, whose responsibility is this? Are we going to assume that uh, once a new employee has met somebody that they can then maintain that relationship or are we going to take on board as an organisation um, the the onus, if you like, of having that be something more um, structured, at, at least initially. So I think how do we get people connected to the key people in their journey? But then also, how do we create opportunities for people to interact in a way that's less transactional and not only 100% focused on work is another key question. And there's some really cool stuff that local businesses here in, in Montana are doing to that end. And I think the other piece of that is an equity piece. Like obviously we live in a ski town and lots of people come to Montana because they want to interact in the mountains and be outside a lot. But not everybody in Montana comes here because they want to ski and they want to hike and they want to bike, right? So if we organize some get-togethers, if you like, that are all based on activities that only are interesting or even accessible to 80% of our workforce. What happens to the 20% of people who don't feel like that works for them, right? How do we, you know, what that's really doing is inadvertently reinforcing that they're not in the in gang, right? So how do we really build some intentional... Um, opportunities for people to engage in not necessarily in person because that's sometimes available but also not in not available and we've been lucky obviously in the states we can still get people together if we want like generally speaking some restrictions and mandates um, prevent that but in general we still can have a get together if we would choose to have one as an organization periodically to get people together but then I think you can also there's some great stuff happening let's do say a virtual treasure hunt around a town where that is the hub of an organization where it doesn't really matter if you live in Bozeman or you live in Minneapolis or you live in California you still have the same experience of getting to know that town which you're going to keep hearing people refer to because you've participated in this virtual experience that's been exploratory and you've been paired up with different people and it's been fun and you've had to solve problems together and challenges together that is completely outside of your work right but yet also directly relinked related and linked to your work because if you then build those connections with people feel like you understand what people are talking about when they say the names of local places that they're going to out of work etc and you feel like you've had a shared experience you, you feel like you belong to that organization in a significantly different way to being the person and especially if there's just a handful of remote employees these sort of people on the periphery that have no reference point for 90 percent of what happens that sort of water cooler conversation. Well, in addition to the water cooler conversation, one of the things that I notice in business that is missing as a result of all of this is when a problem arises, you often can just walk out of your office historically and grab, you know, Sue and John and, you know, Mario and bring them in and say, hey, we have a supply chain issue. We have a problem with it. And you can, it's harder to do that. And in some cases, you can't bring the team you want together instantaneously because, you know, everybody's on their own flex schedule now. And, and that's one of the things, that, you know, I wonder how you how you recreate that as you're looking to redesign, you know, the workplace. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, you're so true. And especially, obviously, if you 
now you're not having to rely on a local workforce means that you're now working across time zones or countries um, like we do. I think it's really this idea of like um, shared promises, like, hey, what's the promise that we're making to you as an as an employer and what's the promise that we uh, that you will make to us in return for that, right? And no longer can it be, or no longer do we want it to be like you're going to be in the office at nine to five and then we'll give you a paycheck, right? We've we've certainly evolved and are much more sophisticated and nuanced about how we start to do that. And so before, if we would just grab those four or five people and we can't now, maybe instead we've had this conversation, this sort of shared contracting around expectations. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to work when it suits me, but I'm going to be clear about that when, it, when that is so you feel like it's easy to grab me when you need me within the constraints of when I can work. Or you say, okay, we're, we're sort of like the problem-solving team. Yesterday I would have, or last, you know, pre-COVID, I would have been able to solve that problem in the moment. Today maybe like our problem-solving Um, huddles happen Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And so we've got to shelve it for a day. But at the same time, we know that we'll have everybody's undivided attention committed to that problem, as opposed to trying to pull them together today when maybe someone's dropping off their kid, another person's um, cooking dinner, and another person is sort of feeling like. So again, if we can get really great at making the time to to build some shared expectations that leave everyone able to get what they're they need, even if it's not perhaps in the moment and they are used to that, so adjust our own paradigm a little bit, then we're going to have significantly better outcomes and we're going to help have people feeling like, hey, this work is working for me as well as me working for work. And that's going to be one of the key things that keeps them together. And I think we also need to think about how we can use tech, right? Before, maybe we used to have a conversation every single time. We had a client meeting, then we had a little bit of a huddle about what we were going to do and next steps, and then we took it away. Maybe we can't do that now because maybe we didn't all go to the client meeting, but perhaps we're, I mean, lots of companies are using Slack as a way to sort of get rid of our inbox and stuff. There's stuff like that, but then there's also really creative ways where maybe we have a client meeting and then we make each other a little bit of a video saying, hey, this is what the client meeting was. This is the outcome. I'm going to put what you need to keep keep the project going when you wake up because it's already midnight where you are so that we don't have to then find a way to come together tomorrow to talk about what's next steps and stuff. So how do we get really creative as individuals about passing the information on, getting doing that in a way that serves everybody and not just the people at the top of the hierarchy and doing it in a way where we're giving much more time to like build intentionality around that and really hear what people need. That's all very helpful and useful and, and good insights into what's going on. So we have this great resignation going on. Meanwhile, Montana's unemployment rate is at a 14-year low at 3.1%. But as you know, in Bozeman, and, and we see it here in Missoula and other places, there's still worker shortages in a lot of businesses and industries. So Kendall, what's going on? Well, I think a bunch of different things are going on. We, I mean, certainly Montana's becoming more and more unaffordable as a place to live. So we've got lots of people being forced out of the area because they can't. So, you know, they're they're working their job, they're working their two jobs, they're working their three jobs. It's completely unsustainable. So we've got rising housing costs and, and cost of living driving some people away from the area. And lots of these jobs that we're seeing worker shortages are the p- jobs that people need to be in 
the restaurant serving the food or, you know, in the factory making stuff. It's not the consultants who are sitting at home doing their work from wherever they want. So we've got rising cost of living. And then that's obviously being driven by a couple of different things. We've had mass migration across the whole country and the world to a degree because of COVID where people have sort of asked themselves, why am I living in this really expensive town when I no longer need to go to off- go to the office and I could do my job from Hawaii or I could do my job from Montana for a year and then they're staying. We've also got more people opting voluntarily to not be in the workforce. Some of that's because they're looking for after care for they're looking after kids, some of that's they're looking after parents, etc. Some again, sometimes impacted by the pandemic. And they've got more money in their bank account, so they don't have to work, so they're not willing to settle just for any job. They're waiting for the right job. And then we've got a lot of people, which we've always kind of had, but I think that's growing, who retire in places like Montana. And so the cost of living is being driven up by people coming in and then obviously not contributing to the workforce. And so based on the amount of bodies we have here, we don't have, they're not all workers, right? So I think all of those things are happening. Um, And then I also think that, I mean, Bozeman's lucky. We've got MSU here. We've got lots of students here coming here because they were able to still go to class in person, whereas they perhaps had originally been going to university. So we have more young people in the workforce or potentially who could enter the workforce, but they, you know, do they want to? And are they willing to go to a job on the front line where they might be more at risk of contracting COVID and stuff? So I think we just have a lot of sort of a confluence of some related and some unrelated things. And then, of course, as more people have moved into Montana, the demand for workers has grown and we haven't really been able to keep up with that because of all of the things I just talked about. So does that reinforce this great resignation scenario or does it contradict it? Well, I think... You know, it is what it is, right? So, but I think it contradicts the rhetoric that um, we sometimes hear about, you know, the thing keeping people out of the workforce is government handouts. Like the reality is all the people who want to be working are working and we still don't have enough people to fill all the jobs, right? So I think we have to get really creative about how we attract the type of people that we want and what we're doing to then keep them. So I think it's just becoming a lot more competitive. And we see like there are organisations all across Montana who aren't having this problem. They, they not having shifts they're not having trouble filling shifts they're not having trouble finding great quality people right so it's not it's not the situation is not just that we don't have enough workers it's the situation is that we don't we can't all have the workers that we want so how do we become the place that they're all going to or how do we you know or because that's really our um you know, the key thing that's going to dictate our survival if we consistently can't staff shifts or have to close early or have to be closed a couple of days, then people start going elsewhere. And that can be a great short term solution, but it's not a sustainable long term solution. I'm speaking with Bozeman, Montana based Kendall Clifton Short of the global firm within people. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana Railing committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, 
a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. So, Kendall, for a business, what is the cost of people leaving? Uh, well, you want the money? <laughs> I, I think, um, you, you know, it can be sort of industry-wide, the average is about 18% of their annual salary. So I think, but but that's sort of in monetary terms, but there's also the cost of that all that knowledge, that intellectual, um, you know, knowledge walking out the door. There's the cost potentially of key people leaving on the culture, which it drives obviously engagement and how satisfied and, and rewarded people feeling about being at that place. And then there's also the cost of um, all those people who perhaps haven't left but are feeling a little disengaged in work and are really only giving somewhere between sort of 60 and 70% of what they could be giving to an organisation. So there's the monetary cost, which is often why this becomes a financial argument, which it should be, absolutely. But then there's also all of the financial costs that are really hard to quantify, like what's the impact of key people leaving on the the co- company culture? What's the impact of people not leaving but yet feeling really disengaged? What's the impact of onboarding and the constant load that then that puts on managers and people higher up to constantly welcome all of these new people, to be honest, in a, in a slightly new paradigm that we're not necessarily super comfortable doing that yet. So it doesn't come as easy as perhaps it had two years ago. So yeah, uh, 18% is sort of like the statistics that's thrown around, but I think potentially much greater when you factor in all of those other pieces too. As the confluence of all these actions and events are swirling around, in your opinion, is there is there really a, a need for a full-scale redesign of work itself? Is there a need or do I think that it's going to happen? feel like two slightly different questions. I feel like there's some organisations, obviously globally, but in the US too, who are already doing this amazingly, right? And I think wholesale reorganisation of work, that's a big task that um, it's not going to happen sort of in the next six months. It's happening in different ways, in different places, but something that's sort of coordinated, I, I don't think is the way that it's going to happen. I think the conversation we're having today and how some employers are already nailing this and leading this and, and the, you know, this is the privilege that we have getting to work with lots of those leaders, um, that they're going to be shining a light on how we reimagine success and how we rethink our sort of employee experience and the folks who aren't yet doing that and haven't yet started thinking about this will will realise and they'll um, they already are looking around and seeing what's happening and seeing what's working and and the conversation is changing. So I think. While it might be nice if we could sort of overhaul it, I think the overhauling has started to happen and it's going to happen bit by bit and the people who are being successful will pull everybody along. Can you really future-proof an organisation in kind of the unpredictable times that we're living in? Yes, in short. Like I think, you know, what what do we even mean when we say future-proof, right? Can we design our organisation to um, 
anticipate whatever the future is going to put in front of us? No, because we all don't know what that is. But what we can do is build organisations that are flexible and adaptive and have such great clarity about what's at their core that no matter what is thrown at them, there's a really strong anchor or North Star that can help them navigate through that uncertainty. So I think it it takes a couple of things, like really, really being clear on what it is that you're here to do, which problem that you're solving, like what's your purpose, why are you even in business employing people? And then it it requires you to have absolute clarity on what behaviours that what is our culture like how do we expect people to behave and what are the things that are so important to us and no matter what happens we're not going to change but then if something happens like for instance we can't deliver our services in the same way that we used to because we know why we were delivering them we can reimagine a new way to deliver the same outcome or so solve the same problem even though we would never even had to think about it or conceive it previously because what we're doing was working so I think that's the first part like do you do you really have the the strong foundation that's going to serve you in uncertainty and then secondly how do you empower your people to do their best work without having to like bring everything up the chain how do we build systems of accountability flexible systems of accountability where people can are trusted to show up and do great work and have the skills that they need to change the way they're doing it as the situation changes and how do we equip our leaders with the skills to lead an organization like that I think that's that that's the recipe for future proofing your organization rather than trying to anticipate what might be coming down the pipe and designing for that because the reality is it's probably not going to be what we had anticipated it to be. And we just really never know what's around the corner. I mean, if the last sort of 18 months have taught us anything, it's that. And how receptive are leaders to hearing this and doing what's necessary to adapt? I think hearing it and doing what's necessary to adapt are two slightly different questions. I think you know, not not everyone's happy to hear this, right? It's much easier just to keep going the way that you've been going, especially if it's been working for the past 20 years. So it can be quite an uncomfortable conversation if there wasn't anything wrong previously, but it's not working now, right? That's a, that's a whole shift we have to make as a leader of an organisation. So, but for those people who are um, open to it, and I think there is an openness and a growing openness as the magnitude of this sort of great... Um, Uh, resignation and great discontent problem is continuing to unfold in the country, more and more people are open to the conversation. I think how receptive are we to actually putting in the work to to make the change again that's a different conversation because some organizations are pretty close already like they don't have to do a massive amount of work they just maybe need some fine-tuning or some tweaking or some different like how do we unleash our leaders better and stuff for organisations where this has not even been something in their consciousness ever, it, it can feel overwhelming and like daunting and like a massive undertaking. And I don't want to ever pretend that it, it can't be that. So I think how do we help leaders, you know, it doesn't all have to be done tomorrow. There's a, a natural place you can start starting somewhere already changes the conversation with your staff than not starting and so how can we help them feel like 
gosh, this just feels completely overwhelming, but rather like, hey, this is going to, you know, be a journey that we're going to be on and it's going to be energizing and exciting and overwhelming and um, frustrating all at the same time, but that it's still worth going on. And at the end, we'll have our people rallying around us in a way that we've never really had them rallying around us, to be honest. And we can look back and be really proud that we chose to go on a journey and are here like reaping the benefits. So I think, I think, yeah, it's so complex. Like how do we help people feel comfortable with the size of the task relative to what that size genuinely is for them is really the question that we need to be asking. For the business leaders that are listening that you haven't advised before, what are the key points you try to make about being successful in the future? I think um, where I'd start is like how clear are you on why you're doing what you're doing and who you are as you do it. So do you have the conviction around who you are and why someone would want to come and do that work with you? Because that's really a key piece of the puzzle. How can we possibly make an enticing offer to someone or be an attractive organisation if we can't really answer those questions or we can't really articulate it clearly in a way that's easy for people to understand. We might know that but not be very very good at at sharing it or perhaps just the, the sort of couple of people at the top know it. But how do we start to get move that information down and have people across the whole organization be ambassadors for what you're doing that's the starting point yeah so get really clear on who you are and why you're doing what you're doing and why someone would want to come and work for you and then secondly be open to going on a journey that involves every single person at your organization because there is a massive amount of insight to be gained on how they are experiencing your workplace that we just don't have the privilege of having access to all the time as leaders of organizations so how can you commit to going on a journey um whatever may like be okay with whatever unfolds in that journey and really capitalize on the insight that your team has to share as you go on that journey. And for workers who are somewhere in the vortex of thinking about leaving or have left voluntarily and are now considering what they should be paying attention to, what advice do you have for them? Well, I think for the employees that haven't left yet, <laughs> I think, you know, there's a, there sometimes is a massive opportunity to drive change in your current organisation. If you are feeling like it's not serving you in the moment, how, you know, how can you make that clear? And your um, the people that you work with are either going to listen to that and be really grateful that you would have shared that or they're not. And so that, that I would say, like, start to see if you can affect change for the better where you are first before you leave. But if that doesn't feel like a viable option, again, like go and find there are plenty of great organizations who are thinking really differently about how they can serve your needs as you serve their needs. So go and find an employer and make sure that they... Um, there is sort of mutual benefit in you being there and that there is an avenue for you to drive the type of change that you want to see in the workplace wherever you go next. So the situation we now are finding ourselves in has disproportionately affected women in the workforce because of the educational issues related to children not being able to go to school and, and childcare and that sort of thing. What's your thought on how that 
fits into the overall way we're going to move forward. Yeah, I think it's women and it's also minorities. Um, I think that, I mean, there's there's a lot of power in having a diverse workforce. There's a lot of power in having a diverse leadership team, a diverse board driving an organisation because of the different perspective that these diverse voices bring to your organisation. So if we can't find a way to design a a way of working that works for women, that works for minorities, that works for people of colour and can really unlock all of the value that they have to offer, then we're missing out on all the great insight that they have to bring to our organisation. So I think it really behooves us as leaders to think really carefully about not only how do we attract diverse people, including women, back into our organisations, but how do we then... um, include them and have them feel like they have a home here rather than they're the token woman or they're the token black person or they're the token minority. So I think how can we start, and this is really happening in Montana, which is great to see, how can we get really creative about what the different needs of that demographic is? Perhaps we're starting to think differently about childcare. Perhaps we're starting to think differently about um, when we need people to be working. Perhaps we're starting to think about carefully about the relationship between different generations and where we do our work, etc. So I think, again, how do we as leaders of an organisation think, where are we blocking women and great diverse people from feeling like they can have a role, a powerful role in our organisation? And what can we do to dismantle that barrier? So, and again, there's only so much of that conversation we can have at the boardroom level. We need to go and have a conversation with all of those people who either aren't in our workforce or are, but are are, just sort of not not having their full potential unlocked or don't represent this the, the proportion of our organisation that we would like them to and say, hey, what are the barriers to more women or more minorities coming and feeling like this would be a great home for them and really deeply listening to what they say and coming up with creative ways to um, try and solve some of the stuff that they uncover for us. Kendall, thank you for sharing your insights on this really timely topic. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much for having me in the conversation. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time and I'll talk with Joe McDonald, visionary founder of Salish Kootenai College. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.